Hello, I am Katie Bowman, and this is the Move Your DNA podcast. I am a biomechanist and the author of Move Your DNA and seven other books on movement. And on this show, we talk about how movement works on the cellular level, how to move more and how to move more of your parts, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome here. Are you ready to get moving? Important as it is for us grown-ups to move our DNA, it's really vital that the littles are also moving theirs as often and as diversely as they can. So much of the modern Western world in which we live is really structured to remove opportunities for both children and adults to get out there and move. And I know we've seen a slow disappearance of school playground equipment as well as time for being on the aforementioned playground. And if you couple empty schoolyards with school rooms and and rooms in our own homes, in which sitting down and being still are highly prized and rewarded skills, even the incidental movement kids might have naturally had access to is disappearing rapidly. So today on Move Your DNA, we're going to talk about actions you can take now to help them move their DNA. My guest is Angela Hanscomb, who is the author of Balanced and Barefoot, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children. And Angela has some solutions up her sleeve, and you know I do too. So I'm looking forward to that conversation and to connecting the dots between Angela's work and my own. These are dots that align on movement, naturally. So that's coming up, but first let me reach into the Move Your DNA mailbag. Today's question portion of the podcast is brought to you by the Dynamic Collective, which is made up of my Mayu, Boots for Kids, Soft Star Shoes, Unshoes Sandals, Earth Runner Sandals, and Venn Design. These are all small companies whose values are aligned with my own, and I use their products and believe in them, and I'm happy to have their support for this podcast. Later on today, we will be learning more about my Mayu, who makes minimal boots for kids. But my mailbag question today is this. Katie, I was searching online for some tips on how to minimize hair loss, and I came across this study. The hypothesis implies that pattern hair loss is partly caused by not enough movement in particular areas of the scalp. Here's an excerpt from the study. Quote, organs, tissues, and cells are constantly exposed to mechanical forces and subsequently react to them. For example, blood vessels are subject to shear stress of blood flow, Bones receive pressure due to weight-bearing, cartilage is exposed to hydrostatic pressure by weight-bearing, and hypertrophic scars develop with increased tension to the wound. We hypothesize that scalp massage is a way to deliver mechanical forces to the scalp, including epidermis, dermis, skin appendages, blood vessels, and nerves, and he's, he's linked to the study, and I will as well in the show notes. While reading this, I thought about how you always encourage us to, quote, move more and move more of you, end quote. Can we hear more about your thoughts and insights on this study and maybe massage in general? Thanks, Ryan. Ooh, okay, so in general. In general, massage is awesome. I think there are the movement benefits, which are pressure-related movements, but I also, I think, we'll see touch defined as a nutrient in the future. So many people live alone in lives that not only include very little movement, they include very little touch. So body work like movement is a huge category. 
It would take a ton of investigation to figure out how each modality works and what it provides, etc. But I am almost 100% guaranteed to be at the front of a bodywork line. <laughs> so that's just a little tip about me. Regarding hair loss and movement, and I've read papers on this before, and P.S. for all of you out there, the title of this paper that he's referenced is Standardized Scalp Massage Results in Increased Hair Thickness by Inducing Stretching Forces to Dermal Papilla Cells in the Subcutaneous Tissue. I've read papers on hair follicle movement or agitation and that the theory surrounding hair loss in some slash most cases has to do with hair muscle or hair follicle muscle atrophy. The muscle atrophies and then maybe it's just not able to hold the hair. I'm not sure if that's why it falls out or if it's not growing or or what because that's not my field. But it has to do with muscular atrophy. You've got a ton of muscles all over your body that aren't just those ones we work in the gym and every hair follicle has its own. Anyhow, just a few years back, I could have sworn I talked about it on the show, but maybe I didn't. I started growing out my own hair after reading that. I wanted to see what a natural hair follicle load would be like. And if we think of the natural movement of the hair muscles, it's bending underneath the weight of the hair. Of course, your hair moves the place it attaches when you're moving. So I'm not sure if sitting there with long hair, not sure if that's really just your hair sitting too. Some casts for hair follicles then off the top of my head. Sorry, I couldn't help it. Could be cutting your hair, ponytails or other bound hairstyles, hats, right? These would all be hair muscle casts. And I just remember, you know, I had a hairstylist And she was telling me she had a scan done of the blood flow to her head skin. I'm sorry, is head skin too technical? (laughs) I I cannot think. And it predicted where she would start losing her hair. She was only maybe in her late 20s. And she had these white or gray patches of heat. Was it a heat scan? I don't know how they were measuring blood flow. But these white gray patches were next to other areas on her scalp that were rendering as healthier flow. And they probably had a different color. And they had advised her to start brushing to stimulate these areas. They said to stimulate blood flow, but it could also be that they were really just stretching the muscles, right, by pulling on the hair as the brush went through. So that's an important takeaway is Something might work, but why it works might be different once you've investigated it better. Or it could be that the blood flow is the result of the muscle use or muscle stretch, really. So flow and stretch are happening lockstep. That all being said, if it works, why it works might not matter at all to anyone else. But those whose job it is to write phrases like inducing stretch forces to dermal papilla cells in the subcutaneous tissue. I can hear hairbrushes coming out all over the world right now, friends. So thanks for that question, Ryan and peeps. I love to answer your questions about movement. So if there is something you're wondering, drop me a line at podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. Okay, let's move on to our guest today. I am excited to introduce my guest today. 
Angela Hanscom is a pediatric occupational therapist, and she's the founder of Timbernook, which is an award-winning developmental nature program that has gained international popularity. As many of you probably recognize her name from, she is the author of Balanced and Barefoot, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children. She recently wrote a piece for the Washington Post, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, in which she is arguing that shuffling kids from one activity to another, we call that as parents, we call that transitioning, whether at school or at home, is kind of robbing them from the time they need to go deeply into play and movement play. And play is, you know, in many cases, a kid's full-time job. (laughs) And play teaches collaboration, creativity, and problem-solving. It improves language, math, and social skills. Play deprivation is associated with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. They need more time to learn. They need more time to play, Angela says. We will talk about some of the actions we can take to make both of those things happen. Angela Hanscomb, welcome to Move Your DNA. Thanks for inviting me. I'm familiar with your book. Your book's great. I'm less familiar with Timber Nook. So can you talk just a little bit about what that is? Sure. So essentially what Timbernook is, is basically outdoor play experiences for children out in nature. So um, inspiring them to play in creative ways, but there's also a lot of free play. So every three hours of programming, there's a play experience where the environment is used to inspire kids to play in different ways. And then they have at least an hour and a half of free play every three hours. And it just, and even the experiences are very open-ended and child-driven. So that's Timber in a nutshell. Is Timber Nook, like, would someone offer Timber Nook as a class? Do people come to Timber Nook to be certified to be able to offer Timber Nook classes? Or is Timber Nook actually the place where you go to get that three-hour experience or both? That's a a good question. We actually don't do classes. We use it in the form of camps or um, programs. We're really calling it a program because we found that a class is very short amount of time and it's just not allowing kids to get into a deeper level of play. So we most of our programs are at least three hours long for that sole purpose. And the other thing that's really unique to Timberlake is often you can't find the adults or we're, we're hidden out there. So we're watching the kids play and create societies and really just inspiring them to get to take play to a whole new level. So it's in the form of like a forest program year round or a summer camp. That's how it started was actually in the form of summer camp. But what's happening now as I speak internationally about this outdoor play issue that we're having, that we're taking that away from children, I'm hearing from adults that, you know, they try to take pieces of this knowledge and bring it to administrators to, to create change. And they're getting a lot of kickback. And so what we've learned is that the teachers and the educators really need to experience this firsthand to create change. So that the really the next step for Timbernook is we're going to be bringing our programs into the preschools to bring back outdoor play. What is my next question from that? So who are your Timbernook instructors then? I guess that's my question. So we call them Timbernick providers, and mm-hmm. most of them are experts in the field of therapy or education. Okay. A lot of them are doctorate level occupational therapists that have been doing research on this or psychologists, social workers, and then a lot from the educational field, Montessori, Waldorf, 
and that sort of thing. Reggio Emilia. This kind of combines the world of healthcare and play. Mm-hmm. It links. It's like a bridge. So there's a lot of pediatric occupational therapists. I've worked with lots of them. Right. But not all of them, I would say, have brought in that additional layer of movement that is natural movement. You know, it's like I, I, I think of everything in terms of movement. So even time in nature is really just you know, very diverse experiences of movement and texture and sound and wind and light. The resiliency, the same resiliency that you would find in response to a movement with less diversity is just really ramped up in a natural setting. What was on your journey that made you be really what I would say, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but still an outlying therapist, right? Like I I would say that you're probably on the outliers of OTs and the fact that you have this diversity to your offering. So none of this was planned. So what happened was, you know, I had my own children and my first child had a lot of sensory issues and I was overscheduling her and I was shuffling her from one activity to the next. And it was all about activities And then I used to have nightmares of going into the woods even. So it's pretty ironic. I overcame a lot Mm. of fears. There was many things that happened in my life that got me down this road. But in a nutshell, what happened was I started linking what I saw out in the woods, children, observing children playing out there and comparing that to what I was hearing in the schools. And uh, there's a lot of frustration in the school environment with you know, children and parents and even teachers where they're not allowed to play in the same ways as years pass. And so when my daughter was five years old and she went to kindergarten, my eye-opening experience was the teacher said, you know, we have a five-minute snack. And she said, "Um, if that becomes an issue, we're going to do a working snack. She said, we don't have time to teach your children how to cut with scissors or to tie their shoes. So please put elastic laces on them. My husband's going to pre-cut everything at nighttime. And then they had a 15 minute recess and there were five. And she said, as soon as it snows, we're bringing your kids inside. Mm -hmm. And as a therapist that works on development, I just knew that none of this was right. And so that was really what kind of stepped me on this path. And I started looking at different educational philosophies like Reggio Emilia and I looked at Finland where the kids were in the river dissecting fish. And, and I ended up homeschooling for a couple of years and also realized that there was not many kids playing outside. So it was really just a series of events that happened in my life that got me down this road. And then what happened was I had an article that went viral on my blog. And that's how Timbernut got out there in a big way from the beginning was this unique message about how we're restricting children's movement over and over, and then how it's impacting their development, especially the senses. Well, especially when your job is to basically provide the movement and sensory experience that's missing, then you have both sides of it. You could see the therapy that will have to be done on the other side, as well as why maybe some of the therapy needs exist in the first place. That's a very unique perspective that you have. Right. Okay, so this podcast series is all super action-based because we could probably have a full-year series where you and I just talk about (laughs) the problem. I mean, we could talk about the nuances of the issues, and there are many layers. But taking action, I think at the end, I feel like most of us hear you say something like that and go, right, nature, movement, 
You don't need to convince me any more than I need it. The challenging part is how, what are the steps? And so I asked you to come with three of your steps and I'm going to match your three with my three. And hopefully with those six steps, somebody listening can have a glimmer of an opportunity, like movement, outdoor movement, outdoor movement with kids will become more accessible just because of the tips we give. So I'm going to have you give a tip and I'm going to give a tip that kind of, I think, I'll try to riff my tips on your tips. <laughs> so Sounds good. yeah. So what's your first action that we can take now to help get kids more active outside? So one action item is to extend recess to a full hour. All right. You know, my kids are in that kind of common school program at this point. They're still in kind of a nature school, homeschool, homeschool co-op hybrid that we are fortunate enough to have in our area. But I was just, it's back to school. So we're recording this mid-September. I think everyone's back in that first week of coming off and really seeing how unscheduled summer is compared to, I read your Washington Post piece and like you really list out, there's like a picture of the transitions in schools. And you can see everything is like in 35, 45 minute blocks. And they're kind of about faces sometimes. Do this, put this down, do this over here. And I have nephews that are now in school and they are reporting back that they only have 35 minute. This is a middle school. They only have 35 to 40 minutes of lunch recess combo. And they don't have smartphones, but all of their peers seem to. And they said that basically sitting in the lunchroom and at recess is now looking at devices because they're allowed to use their devices on their free time, which totally shocked me. I, I assumed, I just assumed that devices weren't allowed in academic settings. Like, you know, like you could have it on you for emergencies, but that you couldn't actually pull it out. And I think probably because I went to, you know, regular school, like we couldn't do anything. Like I couldn't even bring out my own books a lot of times to read. Like it all had to be kind of planned. So the amount of movement I think is significantly less than what you and I had or what my peer groups, you know, late thirties, early forties has. Like we didn't even have that much movement, but even that movement that we had, I had an hour for lunch and recess. That's gone now, which is at least in the schools where we are. Right. So my tip is kind of kind of riff on yours, because I think that most parents right now would have no idea how to extend a recess. Like and you can't as a parent tomorrow extend your kids recess. You can certainly start talking to your school district, you know, talk to your PTAs, talk to your teachers. If you have more flexible schooling situations that don't have so like so many things that they must offer because they have you know various government regulations you can have a little bit of space but I was just thinking like how can we as parents increase recess tomorrow so I wanted to put out the idea of create home recess sessions because I think that sometimes we forget that our home might be squashing movement in the same way that any place with a desk or an office so clearly does. So this is an example. We have a family movie night once a week, but I will actually pause the movie midway for a recess. And it's not like, okay, everyone has to go, you know, move to offset the effects of sitting down and watching this movie. It's more like play, spontaneous, fun, like, all right, we got to go have a family sprint session or 
for breakfast tomorrow, I need to make something right now. So we need to go harvest some berries or rake some leaves or let's all get on our bikes and let's go ride down that pole and back to some sort of recess and peeling everyone away can be a transit. I mean, it is a transition. And so everyone is kind of like jumbled when we first started. But once everyone is outside, that five minute break, because we broke the inertia, turned into something more like everyone once they were in that outdoor movement space, which as much as they love their weekly family movie, they really crave outside movement time on such a deep level that they can't really help but respond once you start it. And we'll be out there for 45 minutes. And this is mid-movie, mid-movie that they were super into. But when your whole family is out there or your friends or your bird friends or whatever else is going on and you kind of engage in nature, like we'll come back sometimes an hour later and sit down to finish our movie. And I do the same thing on kind of wintry or what I call cozy days when like it's really hard to break the coziness of inside to go outside. So I'll just create a recess where it's like, we need to go make a nature bouquet or we need to go do this in the garden or, 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 or come up with your own scenario. The point is that you see your home in the same way that you would want your teachers at school to be giving your children access to outside that you're facilitating what you want them to do in the same way in the space of your own home. So why do we need a full hour of recess? Children are already sitting for hours at a time. They start to get antsy. And so their activity level starts to get a little bit higher. And then when you let them outside, let's say you only have 20 minutes for recess, your activity level will actually go up first before it regulates back down. And so children need a full 45 minutes to an hour for for that activity level to regulate itself so they can um, be calm and grounded and be able to pay attention. Uh The other issue with only having short recess sessions is it takes time to figure out who you're going to play with, what you're going to play, and then the play out that play scheme. So again, 15, 20 minute recess sessions is never enough time to get into deeper play. And so children often resort to playing tag or playing on play structures, but we're missing that creative play, Mm -hmm. which is so important for social development. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I think that sometimes we think of kids' needs of movement as encroaching on what we need to do. So it's like, oh, look, the kids are full up on what they can take academically. Let's let them out and let them like run off their fidgety so they can sit back down to learn more of what we want to teach them versus seeing movement as learning. I think that that's the biggest piece yeah. that's missing. And I, and sometimes when the children come back in, actually a lot of times they're more hyper than before. And so yeah. teachers are getting frustrated with recess mm-hmm. saying, well, why bother? Right. Because the actual shape of the recess is not the right shape. Yeah. That's not what it's for. Yeah. So I love that. So extra time. Okay. Next action item from you. My second action item is to allow children to move in ways that make adults gasp. So essentially what I'm saying is allowing kids to go upside down on monkey bars, to jump off a swing if they want to, to climb trees to, to heights that might make us a little nervous, to spin in circles till they fall on the ground that sort of thing, because those are the type of movements that are going to help organize the brain. Frequently, I will see an adult say, don't spin, you're going to get dizzy. 
But when it's <laughs> doing stuff like that's the point <laughs> when they're spinning, it's their neurological system is really trying to organize that sense. And so if we constantly say, no, be careful, stop, then we become the barrier to child development. So we actually need to, we need to allow more opportunities for kids to move in different ways, because if we don't, they're going to become more and more unsafe. Right. Well, my action item would be then adults need to start moving in ways that make other adults gasp (laughs) and make sure that there are children watching and you can watch the children watching break out in joyful smiles and run over to try something similar, maybe scale to their own level. And I think that as you're talking about so much of the like, be careful, don't do that or watch out. Right. There used to be so much more of that. And I think that there's just been, I'm interested in sedentary culture as a whole. And I think that as a whole, the grownups themselves are receding from those challenging movements. And then their perspective is that they're dangerous. Like I have had so many adults who don't spend a lot of time out moving in complex or challenging ways. Stop my kids in doing the nature exploring physically complex thing by telling them that they can't do it as they're doing it or, and, or to start listing the reasons why that would be bad. And then over time, it just, you get, a whole group where nobody can do that thing. So, you know, grownups on playgrounds or, you know, just to start challenging yourself. If you challenge, if I get a lot of people asking me, as I'm sure you do, how do I get my kids to move more? The number one, the first thing I would say is start moving more yourself and doing it in front of your kids. Get a gymnastics mat, put it in your backyard and you start practicing somersaults. You start practicing cartwheels and handstands. And if you need to do the preparatory moves to get there, I mean, that's what I do is to help people get to explore some of those more complex spaces. But if you do it yourself, and especially when you can do stuff like I love doing cartwheels with a group of kids, we'll go to you know a park and I will do one and there's a flock of kids all of a sudden around you because you're doing this thing. And yeah, you moving more, number one way to get other kids moving more. And that also kind of shows like, I think that kids pick up more on modeling than an instruction. And I've talked about it in other podcast episodes. And it'd be interesting, Angela, to hear your take on it where a kid's job is to play. Like you can really find that in many traditional cultures, certainly hunter-gatherer cultures, where they don't see children as really needing to participate in the work of the the grown-ups, I guess, of the culture they're playing. But the play that they do is all playful versions of skills that they will call on yes. as grown-ups. So that's where I like to clarify play that that there's knowledge that is in play. And when grownups can be playful using their body for stuff that we need, you know, then your kid wants to pop out next to you. And for them, it's play because there's no right or wrong way to do it. They don't have to have any particular outcome. They can stop when they're tired. They can stay. Maybe their play of me digging because I had to do something turns into them looking at bugs and then I move on, but they're still there with the bugs 47 minutes later, you know, or filling a hole with water or whatever they're doing. But if you can use your body 
to do movement things that bring you joy, then they will slowly pick up on those through modeling and not in that classic activity instruction time. Absolutely. Environment is huge. The yeah. big piece of um, the issue, I guess, at Timbernook, our environment is a huge influencer. It's a little different here because there's no adults. I mean, the adults are really, there are adults and they're supervising, but they're really <laughs> stepping back and observing for most of the time. We're only there for safety. So we'll go up and we'll intervene. But the other children there, we have mixed ages on purpose. The other children are inspiration to do things. So there might be a child that's very afraid to get dirty and they'll see other kids in the mud puddle catching frogs. And that is enough for them to overcome their fear and get in because of that modeling piece that you're talking about. So I do, I do believe that there's a huge component to modeling too, as you know, um, from the parenting perspective in the home environment. And I think there's great value to, to playing with our children. And there's great value to also giving them time where we, we kind of step back and allow them to, to play with other kids and see what they come up with. But yeah, that environment yeah. piece is huge. Okay, well, what's your third tip? So the third tip is to inspire big body play outdoors. You know, I've seen a lot of like fairy houses or scavenger hunt type things, but I mm -hmm. think, you know, again, using that environment for inspiration is, is pretty powerful and it can really empower kids to come up with their own ideas, which is becoming an issue more and more. We're, we're actually seeing kids that come to our program that have no idea how to play. And it's very sad because like we were talking about, it's their occupation of a child as play. So, you know, thinking big, if you want to inspire big body play, you would, instead of, you know, with fairy houses, you have little loose parts or materials that they can move around. But with um, big body play, you want to think big tires, planks, that sort of thing, bricks, things that engage the muscles and give resistance to their movement will inspire building, constructing, and you see play come alive at a bigger scale. So that would be one of my tips. And I think that we often think of toys, like, you know, our first instinct is to provide to toys outside for children. But I think it's, there's a lot of value to bringing loose parts to the outdoor environment, even at home, you know, like even putting baskets outside, but not necessarily having anything in them can be enough for a child to be, to be inspired to do something with the baskets. So it really just is a prompt. It, it's a, a mode for inspiration to play. So just really being creative with that. Oh, we went to a, a concert this summer outside and the people who were hosting the concert had provided the game Jenga, which I think it was like a fine motor skill, right? You know, you're stacking and you're removing, but it was like full-size Jenga. So they were cut two by fours. Um, so you were squatting and picking up things and, you know, and yeah. darting out of the way when the whole thing was coming crashing and you were getting up and walking around. And I think... If I can just clarify, sure. big body, you mean basically the opposite of fine motor. So instead oh. of building a fairy house for you, you know, you're moving your wrists and you're moving your fingers and having this like delicate balance, you are squatting, picking up things that are a little bit more heavy. There's another school here in our town that their playground, I think this is key, they don't keep it out all the time. They pull things off their playground area and put them back seasonally and monthly so that it's always fresh and always inspiring. But they have big pieces of lumber out there. Yeah. 
And the kids just start dragging and grabbing and building and and they'll just come up with stuff that you could never ever come up with Absolutely. any other time and that's what you mean by big body right? right so like the kids out during free play the older kids especially they'll create whole societies out there so they'll have stores they'll have trading posts where it's safe to trade they'll be lugging tires back and forth for currency um mm. so but it's they're just engaging all of the muscles and the senses climbing up boulders to, to bring things up there. And, um, it's stuff that like you, as a therapist, um, it's like six months worth of therapy in a week that you see out there. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that too, it's so important is like, we are talking about less. And I think that there's a lot of discussion around nature and movement and natural movement being accessible. And one element of accessibility is, is about money a lot of it is also about time and a lot of other social factors. But for so many, like even starting a program, even I have worked with a lot of occupational therapists and physical therapists who, you know, you open up an office and you've got to buy all this. You have to buy all the equipment to move the arms and the legs where or you could start up, set up more of a green space office where your whole entire therapeutic setup could potentially be almost free. Right. Especially if you're using green spaces that have small shelters or whatever, that th these are inexpensive things for most people that provide even more than what their more expensive counterpart offers. Absolutely. Like for instance, a, one of those sensory balance beams usually costs between two and $300. <laughs> a plastic How much is a two by four? <laughs> right. And exactly. And, or you could go on the log, which is, it's free. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So my tip for this is alter your environment to make big body play outdoors. And I would add it even indoors, like to make it occur naturally. Yeah. And so this means making changes to what's in your yard or in whatever like play space you have, or change how often you are going into spaces where big body play is better supported. I was thinking on this because I'm currently working with a school to design these spaces for both their outside and their inside to have their classroom furniture facilitate big body play. What you call big body play? I've never used that term before. It's a great term. And one of the things I've noticed through a lot of research is schools, not all, but most are already set up. They already own lots of green spaces but most, most of all of the green spaces that are owned by schools are barely utilized. Yeah. I mean, a, a fraction of the time. And I feel sometimes educational models are challenging to shift because money is such a big deal. And time. Money and time. Well, so like money is a big deal Yeah. because there's like, there's no budget to add anything else. And it's like, right. Okay. So how can we then leverage the fact that your school is already 20 to 50% green space. Like it's, it's already there. That space is already there. What's happened is there's not a lot of lessons that are given through the filter of movement. And I was just thinking, like I had a great physics teacher who taught so much of our physics classroom outside like we would actually go to stadium stairs and generate our own horsepower like we would 
get the timer. We figured out the height and then we would run it. And then we would see if our horsepower changed over time, if we could do other things. And so I think that there's a huge amount of education. So I think on one hand, there's this idea that you are bringing up that had been brought up in Vitamin Nature, Richard Louvre books, and in some of our Nature School podcasts where learning can be the byproduct of just physically engaging with your environment, with your natural environment. Because a large part of curriculum is basically just natural knowledge. We call it science, but it's science. It's it's the knowledge of what's happening around you, the other things, the living things. So if you get out there and you're fortunate enough to be in a space where you can, like you said, go to the river and pull out the frog or see what happens when you dig a hole and watch the path of the water move. Those are all things that we reduce to equations in textbooks, and they don't have very much natural context. We don't understand always that these are things happening in the world. They seem more like things that are happening within a book inside a classroom. And my job is to read it and pass a test so that I can then be successful as a grown-up, right? Right. So there's this idea of extending play because learning can happen in that context. At the same time, for people, for all of us who have to transition this model that we have of the education we all need to hold is that we can take curriculum that we've already decided to be valuable and add movement to it. So those are two different approaches that I think are moving towards the same set of problems, right? So if you feel like free play at a certain point, if you got that, if you're able to facilitate that, then those who are doing the traditional academics, if they could start thinking in terms of adding more movement, big body movement, natural movement, big body movement in nature to the curriculum, now we're moving. Like now we're moving quickly because we're on both sides of the problem at the same time. And I have so many ideas how to do this. So if anyone out there wants to create an entire academic school based around movement, then you should call me yeah. <laughs> or don't, don't call me. Never mind. But, but I would think I, it's like, it's the way of the future, but the future is now. I mean, like, I don't think there's any more delay. Like no, it's, it's happening. Absolutely. It's happening. It's happening. It needs to happen now. Definitely. Well, is there anything else that we should, I'm going to link to your Washington post piece and I will link to your post that went viral. That came out before your book, right? Or did it come out right around the same time as your book? No, it came out before the book. Uh, okay. Kids can't sit still or. Oh, right. Something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll link to both of them so everyone can get a sense of Angela's work. It's really great. I have one more question. Can people become Timber Nook instructors? Or if a school wanted to add that element to their school, do they go and train with Timber Nook and then are able to come back and offer? Is that how that works? So the model that's opening up in 2019 is that schools can be become certified to do Timber Nook programming in the okay. schools. So that will come out in January or February of 2019. So, Well, it's, it's interesting because there's a tremendous amount of research and data on children and moving and academics and nature time and well-being and therapy. And in getting it to take action is the problem. The understanding of it is not problematic. It's there. It's understood. Changing the paradigm, yeah. that seems to be the missing piece. But I have heard at various conferences, now that everyone kind of understands that this outdoor education and play space is really kind of a foundational requirement 
for children, which are just future adults, to be well. Yeah, it's becoming a law for some states to add play back into the curriculum. Yes, but the problem seems to be, or the holdup seems to be, there's not enough adults with outdoor movement play skills to Mm. lead the children. Absolutely. That's the issue. It's like now now that we have an understanding, there's no support for grownups who are then have to go take these jobs. And so I really see things like your program feeling a huge niche, people who are starting nature school trainings. My role is to help physical resiliency and comfort in movement and moving through nature, MoveNet, becoming movement teachers. And like, these are all tools to the same end, which is to make those who are kind of in charge of the children more suitable to lead them in the direction that we now know we should be going kind of as a group of humans. So way cool. It's super cool. So thank you for the for writing so much and putting those ideas out there. Thank you, Katie. Angela Hanscom, you can find more about her at timbernook.com. You can find Balanced and Barefoot, her book, online on Amazon, of course, Barnes & Noble, anywhere fine books are sold. And you can follow Timbernook on Facebook at facebook slash timbernook.camps. Each of us is on a path. Angela's path is to help get more kids moving in nature. Mine is to help everyone move more and move more of their parts. And the companies that make up our dynamic collective are also each on their own path. And I'm fascinated by their work. They are makers. They take ideas about how to live more dynamically and they turn those ideas into products that help you do just that. So this fall on Move Your DNA, we're getting to know more about these companies. And really what interests me most is how did they turn their ideas into products? So today we have Suzanne Sosana. She's the founder and CEO of My Mayu, which makes these innovative, minimal outdoor boots for kids and soon for adults, which I'm excited to talk about. So Suzanne, welcome to Move Your DNA. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here today. I used to run a lot of shoe and footwear discussions. I had two books on feet that came out pretty close together. And we were always talking about, I mean, I think I feel like we talk an inordinate amount about footwear on on my social media channel, specifically minimal footwear. Someone else had shared, I think when your company might have been just starting, they said, have you heard of these? I'm from California. I had never really owned rain boots or uh, winter gear my whole life. And then we moved to the Pacific Northwest. Our kids were going to nature preschool and they were maybe three and four. And someone forwarded a link to your company. And it was it was finally exactly what we needed, which was gear that had these minimal footwear principles. So I shared it wide and everyone else was, I'm sure, equally excited as I was. But I would like to know, how did my Mayu get started? Like what made you start making your, how do you describe them? They're not rain boots, you've said. Like, how would you describe your boots? We call my Mayu boots an all-purpose outdoor boot for kids. And when we say all-purpose, we mean that because of the materials they're made of, 
Um, they're super lightweight. They're really flexible. They're easily packable. They can pack really tight so you can take them traveling or back camping or, or, you know, just anywhere out with you. The whole idea behind them was to allow kids to get outside without being impeded by their clunky footwear. And I'll be honest, I actually come from a legal background and um, my partner, my husband, comes from uh, the animated uh, movie industry. So neither one of us really fell into this because of experience, but rather <laughs> true necessity. Both he and I are huge outdoor people and have grown up since very young age in the mountains, skiing, hiking, camping with our own families, him in Argentina and me here in Canada. And so when our youngest son, we have two sons, when our youngest son, Rio, started walking at a really early age, he wasn't even 10 months old yet. We, we literally could not find any boots for him to wear outside that would, first of all, fit his feet. And second of all, that his little chubby legs could actually lift up. The only things we could find were your traditional rubber boots. And as cute as they were, he was doing face plants into every single puddle he was trying to jump into because he just couldn't lift his feet off the ground. And I thought, you know, I started asking around to all my mama friends on the on the playground because I had left law at that point and asked, you know, there's got to be something that he can wear outside that doesn't make him trip. And nobody had any options for us. So that's when we went, well, you know, there's this gap in the market. Why isn't anyone filling it? So after a lot of humming and hawing, we started looking into, you know, well, is this possible? Is this feasible? How could we design something that would be more practical, more useful and better for kids to wear? And after um, lots of discussion, we just we took the plunge in 2013. We took the plunge and. Uh, started my mind. So it was really uh, a product of necessity more than anything. It's just nobody was making anything for kids. And so we decided we should do it ourselves. A little bit of a crazy idea, but here we are, you know, four years after debuting our first boots and things have really, really grown and not in small part to you. So thank you for sharing. Well, you're welcome. And it is it is a huge uh, it's a huge oversight. And then I see it more from the movement side. We have a nature school here. So I see families come to nature education and they're not thinking movement. They're just thinking academics outside. And I I teach movement in a lot of different ways. Not everyone knows, you know, that I, I teach it also locally in different groups. And so I'll work sometimes with parents and they will you know, they're like, just look at my kid, you know, as they're like going through the forest, like they're just not very coordinated. There's a lot of myths, I think, around how children move awkwardly and stumble because they don't have all of their coordination yet. And these parents are like, you know, my kids have their balance is so poor and they're slipping all the time and and they don't want to go for long walks. And meanwhile, this kid is got this stiff boot that allows no ankle flexion. It's so thick that they can't feel what's underneath. It's made out of very slick rubber sometimes with no traction. And I feel like 
this isn't your child that you're seeing. This is your child in this particular, they're heavy, you know, relative to the weight of their segments. And so I really like to begin the school year, this back to school footwear shopping time by saying everything that you're adding to your kid's body is informing and to our bodies too, frankly, is informing our movement and the way that we move. And so when we think how things are, sometimes it's just a piece of gear that maybe isn't quite right. And for people who live in wet, rainy areas, your boots have been amazing. We are on our, I don't know, probably our seventh, sixth or seventh pair at this time. So I appreciate what you're doing, but I have just heard that you are also going to start making grown-up boots. And I just want to know if that's true or not. (laughs) That is true. So since we started this, I mean, I hate traditional rubber boots. I just, they're not comfortable for me. I had a bad car accident in the early 2000s that screwed up my back, which really got me thinking more about, as you say, movement, how I move, how I sit, what I'm wearing on my feet. And I've just found too, as I, as I age, I need things that are are more minimal. I just feel better. And traditional rubber boots are just, I, I hate them. They're horrid. But in, as you say, in the Pacific North, Northwest here in North Vancouver, Canada, you need something in the winter, the fall, winter, spring. I mean, three seasons at least um, to protect your feet and keep them, you know, somewhat dry and somewhat warm from the elements. So I am so excited about our new adult boots. We're launching our Kickstarter in October and I'm just so excited about them. We're launching with two different styles. One is more unisex, and it's a little bit lower on the leg. And then one is um, goes all the way up to the knee and is more feminine. So I imagine more women will buy it. But both of them have the same principles. They're super lightweight. They're very flexible. It's basically the grown-up version of um, the kids' boots. And we're just so excited. We just can't wait. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. I know, I know. And I just like, that's, that's a huge shift. I, I can't even imagine what it would be like. It'd be like me adding kids programs. It's like doubling. It's like doubling the work that you're doing. It, uh, it changes the dynamic of the yeah, company, but sure. in, a, in the same vein, it really doesn't. Because from day one, we really have been more about getting families, getting people outside And that's our motto is just be outside. And I firmly believe in that because, you know, every time I'm having a bad day and I, 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 in my head, the best thing for me to do, and I did it even yesterday with my young son, Rio, was to get outside. It was raining. We were cooped up and nobody was happy. And I just grabbed his hand and I said, look, we're going for a walk. And just going for that 45 minute walk outside getting our blood pumping we had some alone time together it's just it really is about that so our gear each and every time we put something um, new out there we change something with the boots or we add a product to our product line there's this real conscious decision when we're making those changes those design element changes or introducing a new product is is this going to help people get outside and enjoy nature more because the the I used to look at playgrounds and I still do, you know, even at my son's school, I call them boot battlefields. You're not a mat. You, I'm sure you have seen the number of parents who actually carry their children's big clunky rubber boots and the children are running around in the rain and they're running shoes because they're lighter weight and they're easier yeah. to run in. And that's what they want to play in. 
They don't want to be clomping around in big boots and, and adults don't either. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to, we need to get them on adults as well. Well, and I I think that's why I love all of you in the collective is you're all makers, you're all making products, but no one's end goal was to start a shoe company. It was always to solve (laughs) a problem. It was to make movement in all these cases more accessible, more natural movement, more movement in nature, more nature time, more family time. And that to me is just, it's such a beautiful perspective to launch a company from because I think it resonates. I can feel it on your website and the way you do customer service and the way that you talk about your product. So again, just highlighting that not all products are the same because the intention behind them is different. I would like everyone to know that you support our local nonprofit kids in nature organization. So I wanted to thank you on behalf of the Olympic nature experience because I'm on the board there. But what do you most want people to know about my Mayu that maybe they don't? Um, that is a really good question. I think really what I would like most people to know about my Mayo is we really are a small family company that has, uh, big dreams and the best intentions. And so, you know, not everything goes well in your first iteration of products. Sometimes it takes a while to learn things. And we've learned a lot over the last four years. You know, manufacturing is an entirely different beast. My husband and I each bring our own unique set of talents and strengths to our company. But basically, you know, I run this while my sons are at school and then we do more when they're in bed and we're working super hard. And, you know, sometimes we don't get things perfect. I have taught my sons from the beginning. There's no such thing as perfect. But we do intend and strive to put the best thing out there that we possibly can and each time that there's a new iteration and there's tweaks and design, and we take all of the feedback from our customers, you know, I take criticism is, is a way to improve. It's the, it's the opportunity to make things better. And so when people reach out and say, you know, I didn't really like this aspect of it. Um, have you thought about changing it? I welcome that because we don't know everything. We're just trying to, you know, get kids and families and adults outside and enjoying things without really having to consciously think about what's on their feet. So that's what I really would like people to know about my Mayo is we're here, we're we're doing our best and we just want to help you get outside and enjoy nature because I truly do believe that that nature heals pretty much anything. I just have one more question that just occurred to me. What's a Mayu? So, as I said, our youngest son Rio was the was the reason for creating these boots. And so, Rio meaning river. Mm-hmm. We had this logo that had the two M's. We started off the company calling it Muddy Munchkins, and had I'll be honest, there was a, a big shoe company that that had uh, some problems with the word Munchkin. So, in the end we agreed with this big shoe conglomerate that we would use the word munchkins just for our line of boots, but that we would have to call our company something else. So we liked the logo mark. We liked the little critter, the two M's. And so we had to come up with something else. (laughs) Luckily for us, the Quechua word for river is Mayu. So my Mayu Mm. was this sing-songy, still had the two M's, and it actually fits a lot better, and I really like it. Some people have a hard time pronouncing it, 
but uh, it really works for us. And Quechua also being, it's an ancient language. It was spoke by the Incas and uh, my husband being South American. It was all, it was like all these stars aligned. And in the yeah. end, I'm actually grateful that we had to change our name because I think my Mayu is, it, it speaks more about our company. It's more with the flow, the flow of a river. We go with the flow. It's got that water element that's important to you know all of our family. We like to live by the water. We're kiteboarders. We like to surf, even if it's poorly. Um, so all of these different elements came in, and, and that's where my Mayu came from. Suzanne Solsona is the founder and CEO of My Mayu, which is M-A-Y-U, for any of those out there wondering. And you can find out more about them at MyMayu.com. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Katie. That's it for Move Your DNA this time. If you like what you heard and you are not yet a subscriber, please consider subscribing. And if you really like what you heard... Please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps other listeners find their way to us, and we appreciate every one of you. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. Until next time, get outside. has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such.